I don't know what I hate wearing worse. Your face or your body? I mean, I enjoy boning your wife, but uh, well, let's face it, we both like it better the other way, yes? So why don't we just trade back? You can't give back what you've taken from me. Oh, well, plan B. Let's just kill each other. Put off that mask of burning gold with emerald eyes. Oh no, my dear, you make so bold to find if hearts be wild and wise and yet not cold. I would but find what's there to find, love or deceit. It was the mask engaged your mind, and after set your heart to beat, not what's behind. But lest you are my enemy, I must inquire, oh no, my dear, let all that be. What matter, so there is but fire, in you, in me. The poem you heard at the top of the show was The Mask, which was written by W.B. Yeats and which appeared in his 1910 collection, The Green Helmet, when he was 45, just past the midpoint of his career. We'll discuss The Mask and, indeed, masks more later in the show. But first, welcome to the second episode in our Poetry Goes to the Movies series. My name is Colin Waters. I'm a writer, I'm an editor, and I work at the Scottish Poetry Library. And I'm Adam Davis. I'm a uh, poet, a photographer, and a teacher. And my uh, first collection is uh, Index of Haunted Houses, which was released last year by Saraban Books. Now, in the last episode, we began our exploration of cinema and film with perhaps the obvious place to start, which, of course, is looking at poets who made films, as well as films that are self-consciously poetic. We spoke about Maya Deren, Pasolini, and Margaret Tate. What film are we focusing on this week, Adam? Well, the only logical place we could go would be uh, John Woo's 1997 action classic, Face Off. Now, not many people who watched Face Off <laughs> came out in 1997. <laughs> I, I don't think many people were taken with its poetic qualities. Um, what, what was it about this film that made you think, you know, I want to look at this film again in a poetic light? You know, other other than the fact that it is probably one of the most bizarre films ever produced by a, uh, a major Hollywood uh, film studio, uh, you know, and, and turned into an action blockbuster, other than it's John Woo's arguably finest American film, or the third and weirdest entry in Nicolas Cage's uh, triumvirate of boom that contained both The Rock and Con Air back in 96 and 97, and beyond the fact, perhaps, that it answers Elliot's question that he poses in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, whether there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. I really view this film as a way to look at identity, at, uh, at masks and metamorphosis, and uh, you know these, these kind of timeless and central issues uh, to poetry. Before we get into the poetry itself, uh, it's probably a good idea to talk a little bit about the film and its creator, John Woo. So um, I'll start by a quick look at John Woo's uh, life and career. John Woo is a Chinese-born Hong Kong film director, producer and screenwriter. He was born in 1946 during the um, Chinese Civil War. Uh, the Wu family were Christians and uh, they faced persecution during the sort of early purges that uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party were making at the time. So uh, they fled to Hong Kong. Wu's childhood uh, was very poor. The family were often in dire straits. Uh, but nevertheless, they persisted. And uh, Wu himself, uh, by 1969, he got his first break in the film industry. He got a job as a script supervisor. 
And I think it says something about his drive and ambition that um, within a mere five years, he'd started you know, to direct films. His first film mm-hmm. came out in 1974. Um, it'd be another sort of 10 years or so before he really started to um, come to prominence um, in an international uh, way. First film that really international audiences started to wake up to his incredible style was The Killer, which came out in 1989. The Killer is often described as being part of a genre known as gunfu, <laughs> no doubt because of, uh, they're often called balletic action sequences. Uh, he makes great use of slow motion, of um, up close um, gunfights. It's highly choreographed, it's very violent. But the first time you see it, you know, it's absolutely thrilling to see it. And I think The Killer is the best example of, mm. of, of his work. But I'd also say, you know, of his Hong Kong films, the other great one is Hard Boiled, which was made in 1992. The year after that, uh, Wu moved to America to make films there. It was the obvious move to make. It wasn't entirely successful to begin with. He did a, a Van Damme vehicle at first, which I went to the cinema to see, Hard Target. And You saw I'm, that, you saw that in, the, in the theater? Yeah, and it was a massive, massive disappointment. You know, yeah. after having seen Hard Boiled and having seen The Killer, uh, the, the Van Damme um, uh, vehicle, it was just a, it was really just a good example of how Hollywood doesn't know what to do, you know, right. with great directors often. Yeah. And the film he made after that, you know, even more so, at least the Van Damme film had some action in it. The next film he did, Wind Talkers, you know, it's got John Travolta, it's got Christian Slater, it's about code-breaking during World War II, it's very yeah. boring. It's yeah. not an interesting film. So that takes us close to 1997 and when he made the film, which is under discussion today, Face Off. He actually turned it down at first. I think he turned it down a few times before he accepted it. Yeah. The early version of the script was more science fiction. It was more set in future. It was a bit more um, technological, uh, which m- might have, who knows, maybe it would have explained the crazy premise at the centre of the film a bit better if they stuck more to the science fiction aspect of it than the thriller aspect of it. Nevertheless, they, they did this film. It came out in 1997. It's a kind of game of cat and mouse between uh, John Travolta's character, who's an FBI agent. What's his first name? It's Archer is his surname, isn't it? Sean, Sean Archer. Sean Archer. Yeah. And he's up against a terrorist played by... Nicholas Cage, well, I say terrorist, he's described as a terrorist for hire, which is, you know, the 90s, and I guess the yeah. 80s way of saying, you know, they do stuff that um, terrorists do, but we don't actually want to talk about the politics, it might motivate Bit, someone to get yeah. caught. <laughs> so what, what we're going to do is call him a terrorist for hire, whatever yeah. the hell that is. I mean, the real reason that Archer is really against the Nicholas Cage character, who has the brilliant name of Castor Troy, we'll return mm. to that there in the show, uh, as, as you see at the start, um, Kester Troy killed, by accident, Archer's son. That's been fueling their beef. I should say as well, just as an aside, how pretentious is calling your kid Kester Troy? And also his twin brother called um, Pollux. This is obviously referring to the mythological story of Kester and Pollux. Don't worry if you don't know it. We'll be dealing with that later in the show. But I mean, how did they survive high school? That must must be what made, you know, them both insane. I, I, I had a guy at my high school who was called Aeneas after the, the, the protagonist of the Aeneid and his life was made a misery. So I can only, you know, my sympathies go out to Castor and Pollock's Troy. It's a great question because I wonder if the names chose them. I mean, did the parents really do that or did they suddenly decide that those were the names that would best befit a, a career in international terrorism? <laughs> I mean, another thing as well is in, in Britain, Castor you might get away with, but Pollock's, it sounds too close to bollocks. You know, that's all <laughs> anyone's ever going to call you in Britain. As I say, I think if you're yeah. looking for a psychological trigger for why these two turned into, you know, international terrorists for hire, 
I think it could be, you know, what's in a name. I, I, I think when you just cast them in an entirely more sympathetic light here, I think I may have been wrong about uh, <laughs> about their inherent evil. They were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you haven't seen the film, we don't want to give away too much. But basically, after Archer finally captures Caster Troy's character, well, it turns out there's a bomb hidden somewhere in the city. Yeah. They still they still need to find out where this bomb is. So this is the sort of starting point for the, the preposterous plot. Well, the uh, the issue is I believe that Caster Troy is in a coma and his brother is now in this strange uh, kind of oil derrick slash prison in the middle of the ocean. And the brother is the only one who knows the, the whereabouts of the bomb. And so in order to, uh, to figure out where it is, uh, and, and of course, you know, Pollux will only speak to Castor. Castor is in a coma. So Sean Archer is told that he can swap faces with his enemy. And thanks to new technological advances and, uh, you know, painkillers and, uh, and, and sutures and everything else, he will be able to effectively become Castor Troy within a series of days, go to the prison, find out where the bomb is, and then get out, get his face back and give Castor's face back to Castor. This is getting complicated already. Um, <laughs> but of course, things do not go as planned and uh, all kinds of violent hijinks uh, ensue from there. I guess we have to give away the fact that um, at one point, the, the now faceless caster Troy, he wakes up and is able to yes. transform yes. himself into Sean Archer. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't give away this um, this piece of uh, stagecraft if it wasn't for the fact we'll have to discuss the um, unpleasant ramifications of, you know, of the fact yeah. that this international terrorist for hire is now living in the home of an FBI agent and, and their, their family. But we'll, we'll return to that. Uh, we're not going to um, pass over that. But I mean, the whole point of this film is it is preposterous from top to bottom. You know, it's, it's hard to actually even critique it because you every time you feel like saying anything, you have to stop and say, but the whole, the whole premise is, is, is very silly, don't you? You do. No, it, it, it's it's an absurd film uh, through and through. But I think what I love about it, and, and I would hate to think that we're spoiling anything for anyone, because in my mind, everyone should have seen this movie at some point in their lives. The film commits so wholeheartedly to the conceit of these two individuals being able to swap not only faces, but personalities, and uh, that, that it's hard not to get taken along with it. You want to take his face? Yes. His face? Oh! Eyes, nose, skin, it's coming off. The face. No more drugs for that man. So I wanted to ask you, Adam, as the practicing um, poet uh, here, Identity is such an important theme nowadays uh, in yeah. terms of, of terms of contemporary poetry. Um, how would you say it, it sort of functions? You know, is it is it the first place that poets start identity, or is it something they come round to? How does it you know in the sort of ecosystem of poetic conceits? What what position does identity take nowadays? That's interesting. I think identity is clearly at the, the center of, of most arguments or most discussions about poetry now. And I think identity is probably at the center of most arguments and discussions about, uh, you know, 
culture right now too, right? That, that's, a, that's a huge concern. Who is the self and, and what determines who the self is? Is it the self or the society or any other uh, combination of things? I mean, for me, one of the essential questions in poetry is usually that of the poet versus the speaker. And this is something that was hammered into me through, through my education and something that I also hammered into my students through their education that I offered them. Um, but the I in the poem is never the I of the poet, unless, of course, it is, right? The speaker in the poem is never the same as the author of the poem. But even when it is, you know, we can't say that it is. You know, I think of, uh, of Plath, right? How central the use of I was in her expression, um, you know, in, in her work. But also how rarely, despite all insistence otherwise, that I was specifically her. You know, she both was and was not Lady Lazarus. There's that playfulness I think you can have as a poet in that you can allow your identity to either be infused by or mingle into other identities uh, throughout the course of the poem. I mean, it's an interesting question because in, in thinking about the, the idea or the, the notion of identity in, in poetry, I think we have to go back to the idea of the dramatic monologue um, and like those kind of foundational texts like uh, Browning's My Last Duchess, uh, you know, where you're clearly taking on the voice of another individual, but turning that into uh, the, the poem itself. You know, I'm thinking of, of Richard Howard, a more contemporary poet who whose work is entirely focused on the monologue. You know, he he would write poems in the voice of Henry James or Oscar Wilde or others. But then I was thinking too of, of the poet I, um, who's a fairly controversial figure in terms of the the voices that she basically crafted. You know, she had a, whole, a, a rogues gallery really of individuals, whether they were child abusers or racist police officers, or even a child who's murdered his entire family. She gave them voice on the page, and clearly they were not her voice. But in presenting their voices, it, it complicated our, our notions of who can speak, or who should be allowed to speak, or even who we want to hear from. For me, you know, one of the interesting questions about identity and poetry is that poetry can give you know, voice to the dead, to the fictional, to the unapproachable, you know, to the incarcerated, to the unimaginable even. And also how poetry can give a voice to the underrepresented. One of the main co concerns of contemporary poetry is how identities that have not been traditionally included in or explicitly omitted from the quote-unquote canon can now be brought to light. There's the, the question of, of representation in poetry, right? Like, what voices have we not been able to hear throughout the decades or centuries? And I think with that, there's a heavy emphasis placed now on lived experience, where we're almost seeing the erosion between the question of the poet and speaker in some ways in favor of the poet being the explicit speaker. And so the I and the I, I guess, are, are, are being brought closer to, together. But if you don't want to, maybe I'll give an example of one of I's poems because they are so both compelling and kind of off-putting. Um, this is a poem of hers called Cuba 1962. And given the title, it's dealing with the the fallout from the, the Cuban Revolution and, and also the, uh, the practices involved with that. So this is Cuba 1962 by the poet I, A-I, is how you spell it. When the rooster jumps up on the windowsill and spreads his red gold wings, I wake, thinking it is the sun and call Juanita, hearing her answer, but only in my mind. I know she is already outside, breaking the cane off at ground level, using only her big hands. I get the machete and walk among the cane until I see her lying face down in the dirt. Juanita, dead in the morning like this, I raise the machete. What I take from the earth, I give back and cut off her feet. I lift the body and carry it to the wagon where I load the cane to sell in the village. 
Whoever tastes my woman in his candy, his cake, tastes something sweeter than the sugar cane. It is grief. If you eat too much of it, you want more. You can never get enough. interesting that you touched on the, the subject of authenticity and the um, authenticity voice that speaks the I in the poems. Uh, I, I certainly know from the um, spoken word scene in, in Scotland, in the Central mm. Belt, performers place a real premium on authenticity. It's, um, mm. um, it's felt to be the sort of cornerstone of what they're doing and why they're doing it. That's why I wanted to start the show by reading The Mask by Yeats. Mm. Because I guess Yeats's uh, view on identity and authenticity is is very much at, at odds with what many people might say today. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, in in the poem itself, the the there's two speakers. Uh, I guess they're lovers, and uh, the woman reminds the the male uh, or her lover that mm. uh, his interest in her depends on her guise. It's not it's not dependent on our hidden inner self, whatever that mm-hmm. might be, and. This seems to have been a dichotomy, this difference between the real and what you show. That difference seemed to be something that gave Yeats a lot of energy or which fascinated him. This difference between your internal and your external selves, yeah. that that's really seems to be what gave at a certain point in Yeats' career, his, his midpoint, as it were. It gave him a real, a real kick. I've, I've got several mm-hmm. quotes from him here. Although I should start with a quote from Wilde, uh, which Yeats was well aware of and um, probably influenced him. Uh, what Wilde said is, what is interesting about people in good society, the mask that each of them wears, not the reality that lies behind the mask. So Wilde, Yeats, they weren't really interested in the real person, whatever that might be. It's what the real person puts on show, and that's how you forge your real personality. Yeats again has here, I think all happiness depends on the energy to assume the mask of some other life uh, on a rebirth as something not oneself. I think that all happiness depends on the energy to assume the mask of some other self, that all joyous or creative life is a rebirth of something not oneself, something which has no memory and is created in a moment and perpetually renewed. We put on a grotesque or solemn pain face to hide us from the terrors of judgment. And uh, mm. I find that, I find that, you know, a really interesting take on, on masks and identity in this era in which uh, authenticity is, is, is viewed as the sort of uh, the way in which, you know, the criteria to judge, something Yates is saying, you know, perhaps actually what you look at um, at what people choose to show, the curated self, I guess. I guess Yates, Yates yeah. would be an early an early example of what, as someone saying, you know, whatever you put, choose to put on, on show is your real self. Much in the same way, you know, it reminds me of a, a, something Camus said, that um, whatever keeps you from your work is your work. <laughs> whatever, whatever you're yeah. showing the world, you know, you might think that you're curating it. Actually, that is your real self. Your mask is your real self. In the same way that you finished your piece there by reading a poem that illustrated um, what you were talking about, I've got an interesting poem here by a Scottish mm-hmm. poet called Edwin Muir, and it's called The Face. Mm-hmm. See me with all the terrors on my roads, the crusted shipwrecks rotting in my seas, and the untroubled oval of my face that alters idly with the moonlight modes and is unfathomably framed to please and deck the angular bone with passing grace. I should have worn a terror mask, should be a sight to frighten hope and faith away, half charnel field, half battle and rotting ground. Indeed, I am a smiling summer sea that sleeps while underneath from bound to bound, 
the sun and star-shaped killers gorge and play. That second stanza is very much, you know, <laughs> very much, I think, relates to face-off. You know, I should have worn yeah. a terror mask. Uh, <laughs> a sight frightened hope and faith away. But this that line is... Stage well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I am, in, indeed, I am a smiling summer sea. So this idea, you know, of, of your, your terror mask, but also, you know, your, your smiling summer sea self, that is the basic battle between Archer and uh, Troy uh, in the mm. face between, you know... Um, the warfare that they conduct isn't just between guns. You know, it's about authenticity, isn't it? It's about who is, you know, the more real version of right. themselves. And, and, and the question too, uh, you know, not not just who is the more authentic version of the self, but who's the better version of the self? Mm, yeah, but I mean, better yeah. is authentic because that, you know, in our day and age, you know, right. if you're authentic, you'll just immediately be better. Now that is actually a naive <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking yeah, at things, but that's true. yeah. Well, that's called living your truth, right? Like when you live your truth, then you are somehow more authentic and thereby should be happier with the result. This is starting to sound like a Brene Brown podcast. Or, or <laughs> well, I mean, the interesting thing, you know, if, if, if we take, you know, if we continue down this road of uh, using Yates as our guide yeah. to face off, <laughs> which is not anywhere preposterous in the film. No, no I mean, it's the way it was meant to be. He's yeah, yeah. But if we continue down this road with Yates as our guide to face off, you know, if, if masks allow us to be who we really are, right? If we if we have that in mind, in a way, doesn't face off have a really subversive subtext? Isn't isn't the film saying, you know, that there isn't actually much difference between those who uphold the law and who, those who break the law? You'll right. recall early on in the film, there's a, a sequence where our, our ostensible hero, Archer, is played by John Travolta at this point in the film. Um, he he threatens a woman, uh, a suspect, by taking her child off her and putting it in a foster home. He beats up another yeah. suspect. Yeah. He's also a massive buzzkill. You know, whenever he's in the office, he's just absolutely just making everybody depressed. You know, uh, yeah. and he's a workaholic. He's one of these workaholics who isn't happy unless everybody else is unhappy as him. When you watch the film, you think to yourself, it really isn't that much difference between the FBI agent and the uh, international terrorist for, for hire. They're both people who break the law. But I mean, the yeah. interesting thing here we, we face up as opposed to the Hong Kong films that Wu made is, you know, at least in The Killer and and, um, and Hard Boiled, you know, mm -hmm. the, the killer, the good killer and the, the good cop both have a sort of code of honour and they both recognise right. that in each other. And there's a bromance, I guess, of sorts. There's nothing yeah. like that in Face Off. And I wondered if that was, you know, the American side coming in. You know, the idea of honour and whatnot would just be seen as utter bullshit in America. And uh, they want a harder-edged take on the story. What, what do you think, Adam? I mean, that's, that's interesting because I, I was thinking about that, that, you know, one of the hallmarks of Wu's films is typically a very strong, nearly homoerotic relationship between the two male leads. Um, and they're almost always two male leads, maybe with the exception of the Jean-Claude Van Damme film. Before I forget, one of the guys who wrote the script for Face Off, his mm -hmm. name was uh, Mike Werb. Uh, he wrote the script okay. for The Mask, the Jim Carrey film as well. Interesting. Yeah, it all ties but, up. Well, to go back to your, your, your first question, though, I think that perhaps there is, certainly honor isn't present in, in Face Off, but I do feel like there is a very strong relationship between these two leads in the sense that I mean, I think it's even said out loud at some point that nobody knows, you know, Castor better than I do. Or, you know, th these two men are so intimate with each other um, to the point where, I mean, I don't want to ruin anything, but, you know, they end up both taking away their own children and adopting their own children. You know, there, there is this, this sense to me that 
it is a kind of strange, intimate role play uh, or role playing session that they enter into and that they are both being the other person. What I found interesting for me in terms of the subversion of the film was the suggestion that Caster Troy is really the hero of this movie. He's he's both more fun to hang out with. I would never want to spend a lot of time with Sean Archer because, as you say, he's a total buzzkill. But uh, Caster Troy is both the more interesting character. He's also a better husband uh, to Sean Archer's wife. He's a better father in some ways to <laughs> Sean Archer's daughter. Um, you know, he teaches her how to protect herself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he seems like an overall better even FBI agent than uh, Sean Archer was <laughs> once he comes over. So there's, a, there's an interesting sense to me that a lot of the momentum in the film is the direct result of Castor Troy maybe being this hyper-functioning character who, who actually makes ultimately the end, even though, you know, clearly he's the bad guy and he has to die. He actually ends up making everyone's lives better to a certain extent. At least as far as the protagonists are concerned. Wait, you good looking. God. It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Troy? Now that is between us, okay? But you were. Uh, in a coma? Uh, Nothing like having your face cut off to disturb your sleep. Read the newspaper lately? I think every week when we do this um, podcast, at some point I'm going to say something along the lines of, I'd love to have seen this directed by David Lynch. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the plot of Mulholland yes. Drive. But, I mean, yeah. the genius of Lynch was Lynch leaned into the homoeroticism, you know, the idea yeah. of taking an identity and fetishizing someone else's identity. I think there is yeah. an inherently sexual aspect to it. And I think Mulholland Drive explores the theme immeasurably better. Of course it does. Absolutely. I mean, I should also mention as well that Lynch apparently, um, while we're talking about him, has had a, at one point a long-cherished dream of doing a film version of Kafka's Metamorphosis, which brings me neatly on to the last part of our show. We've looked at identity, we've looked at masks, and we're going to look at Metamorphosis in the light of Face Off. If you mention Metamorphosis, do you immediately either think of Kafka or Ovid, as Ovid's the poet, <laughs> and we're interested in poetry and film, we're going to stay uh, a bit longer with him. If you read in Metamorphosis, um, the Castor and Pollock story is in there. I think not hugely. I went, I tried to find it in the book itself, and either I've got a really badly indexed version of Metamorphosis, or, <laughs> you know, there's so many uh, Metamorphoses stories in uh, Ovid, you can go light on one and much heavier on others. If you don't know the story of Castor and Pollux, um, golly, uh, there's a lot to say about it. But basically, they were twins who... Do you know who um, Castor and Pollux's mother was? Oh, man, this is where I'm going to fail the pop quiz. It was Lita. Lita. It was yeah, Lita. Was, yeah. Was, as, in, as in Lita and the Swan, as in Yates again. You know? There we go. Yeah. Back to it. So we're not getting away from Yates anytime soon. But um, in, in the original version, well, I say the original version of the myth, there's millions of versions of the myth, and you have to sort of intuit the actual story from overlaying them all, I guess. But in, in one version of the story, um, Leda is, let's not soft soap this, is raped by Zeus in the form of a swan. Yeah. And she gives birth to two sets of twins. Uh, in some versions of the story, she, the twins are come out of eggs. She, gives, she lays eggs rather than gives birth to the children. And the four children are Castor and Pollux. Uh, those are the two males. And the two females are 
Clemenestra is one of them. Is Helena Troy the other one as well? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. The females in this uh, brood, if that's the right word for uh, what swans give birth to, but the females in in this hatching are significant, especially in terms of the um, Battle of Troy, Castor Troy. So somebody had been looking up, <laughs> been doing the um, 1997 equivalent of Googling, I guess it'd be Ask Jeevesing, uh, the internet who Castor Pollux were. And there's a very complicated story about how Castor and Pollux got metamorphosed into Greek or Roman myth themselves. I've, I've, I looked up on Wikipedia, and to be honest with you, it gave me a headache trying to figure out the, the, go, the twos and fro's that led them. But basically, yeah. um, it's something to do with stealing cattle or sheep or something. And mm-hmm. I sound so ignorant. I have actually looked this up. It really is. So it'll take me at least a half an hour to un, 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 not all of this. But basically, um, one of the brothers dies defending another brother. And Zeus is so touched by this that he turns them into the Gemini star constellation. So mm-hmm. you see the twin aspect coming in there. Metamorphosis and and poetry it's it's a it's a theme you know that's that keeps that poets keep coming back to you know ever since Ovid maybe because of Ovid do you see a lot of examples of that in you know contemporary poetry? That's an interesting question in terms of the idea of you know both you know in 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 ingesting I guess the idea of identity in poetry but also looking at that as kind of metamorphosis. Um, first off, there's the shape-shifting kind of component of, of poetry itself, right? The idea that as the, the writer themselves, as a result of the page being kind of a, a veil between themselves and the reader, they can assume any kind of mantle they might want so that the poet can be, or rather the speaker can be as malleable as the language. And, um, you know, in, in, in thinking about that, or, you know, the ideas of personas, um, that, that can be adopted, you know, I, I was thinking somewhat of, of David Bowie in some ways, right? Like the idea of how the artist uh, can adopt certain personas to better fit the, the art, or even um, someone who passed away recently, M.F. Doom, um, you know, who was famous for wearing, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the Dr. Doom kind of mask and perhaps not even being himself during certain performances. Um, it, it's kind of a, a freeing aspect. The idea is that you should almost have to don a mask so as to create uh, the truer art, which then suggests that perhaps being your true self is not the path to the truest art, which is an entirely other conversation we could get into there. You know, in terms of the question of metamorphosis itself, I think that there was a book that came out by, I believe it's Joss or Joss, I think it's Joss Charles, and it's called Field. Are you familiar with this book? No, not at all. So it's written in basically what is uh, uh, Middle English. Um, and, uh, but it deals explicitly with, uh, the experience of being transgender in America. And so it's using the, uh, the, this middle English language, which, you know, in a sense was kind of a transitional language between old English and contemporary, uh, to explore the idea of being, I guess, quote unquote, other. And it's a fascinating piece. And, and I think that does tie in, in a sense, the idea of, of, metamorphosis and the ways in which, you know, language itself is a kind of metamorphosing, uh, if that's even a word, uh, force, right? The ways in which we allow it to define and then uh, both redefine us as, as individuals. You know, one of the, the, the spaces you can inhabit in, in, in poetry, it reminds me of, uh, now we're going to get real serious literary theory, um, you know, Bakhtin, um, his ideas on the carnival, right? That uh, 
that the carnival is a central component of literature in the sense that you should be able to borrow costumes or pretend to be someone else, you know, again, to pursue your art. Um, but you don't have to, you don't have to give everything up in pursuit of that. You can still come back. It's a kind of intimate theater that the artist can be engaged with for the sake of deepening their craft. Now that you've mentioned back team, I want to um, lower the um, tone again <laughs> by bringing it back to, to face off. Although I'm going to throw Ovid in as well, because yeah, one, yeah. Of, one of the unexpected things about rewatching face off, because it's been a long time since I saw it. I mean, I watched yeah. it a few times when it came out and enjoyed it, um, but I have, probably haven't seen it for about 20 years. Mm. Uh, and I'd put it on and um, I'd forgotten that, I mean, it's difficult to talk about. Um, because in some ways the film is a very silly, you know, um, entertainment. Uh, but in fact, if you take the film seriously, there is essentially a rape scene in it. Um, uh, just to fill out everybody in, if you haven't, if you don't remember that part of the film, but Nicolas Cage, his character Castor Troy, now being played by John Travolta, um, has infiltrated uh, Archer's house, and he's now pretending to be Archer. He's living with Archer's family. And he um, sleeps with uh, Archer's wife, played by um, Joan Allen. Mm-hmm. And there, it, it, I guess it's consensual, but I mean, it's done without her realizing until later on right. uh, that it's not her husband; it's somebody impersonating her husband. Um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's like a horror film scenario. It's like Zeus and the Swan all over again. Yeah, so. yeah, it's exactly, exactly, exactly. It's Lady and the Swan all over again. And um, it's interesting because I'd, I'd forgotten that. And um, it's interesting because, you know, if you've read Metamorphoses or if you've looked at any of the art inspired by it over the centuries, mm. uh, it's interesting how over and over again, the rape and assault aspects of, of Ovid are just glided over. You know, it's not really brought much to the fore. Uh, I think Lady mm. the Swan kind of sort of goes into it a bit. If I read it again the other day there. And it, you know, it doesn't make a big... It doesn't dwell on the fact that Lather's rape, but the the violence of the crime resonates through it and leads yep. to to Troy eventually this uh, the war at Troy. But mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting the way in which uh, Western culture, whether it be Face Off or whether it be Ovid, is yep. you know just glides over over uh, rape all the time and it becomes just a sort of color on the entertainment palette. I saw this film twice in the theaters when it came out. I was. <laughs> I was, I was a huge fan of it back in the day, but like you, I hadn't seen it in about 20 years and I found myself much uh, more emotionally affected and then also off-put by a lot of the family dynamics in display in the film, you know, particularly with, you know, there are suggestions of incest that come up uh, once uh, Castor has become Archer and he's looking at his young teenage daughter. I would love to see what a French filmmaker would do with a remake of this film. I'm thinking, have you seen um, the director, uh, who is it, François Ozon? He, uh, he directed uh, Double Lover, which is kind of a version of Face Off, and he, did, he directed Swimming Pool. But he deals with a lot of, you know, kind of psychosexual themes. I would love to see what a French director would do with this film in terms of the emotional fallout, because... I think you'd probably agree that, you know, once Joan Allen's character realizes that she did not actually sleep with her husband, she has the scene with the man who is now her husband, who looks like her husband's enemy, and she just lets him off the hook immediately when really this is something horrific that's happened here. And something that her husband's kind of monomania in the pursuit of their son's killer has has created. Sean Archer, again, not to hammer this point too indelicately, but he's almost the villain of this piece in that he destroys everyone's lives in the pursuit of 
capturing this one guy. And then that goes so badly, everything gets destroyed again. And it's really this one guy who kind of puts everything back together. And we could even go further and say that that end scene is a kind of like crucifixion of, of you know, Castor Troy. Um, but that might be taking it too far here into lose biblical themes. In the same way that the film glides over the unpleasant aspects of its own story, of its own, you know, the implications of its own story, in the same yeah. way that Western culture plays with but refuses to look at the crimes that it depicts and sometimes uses just to juice up a narrative. I've been really impressed recently by a British poet called Fiona Benson. She wrote a fantastic collection a couple of years ago called Vertigo and Ghost. And one of the great aspects of it is she looked again at a lot of mythological stories and she put back in the trauma. And mm-hmm. she wrote a longish poem called Zeus, which I'm only going to read a, an extract from to give you a, a taste of it. But you can see what her project is. And, and you know, after having discussed Ovid and ha- having discussed Face Off, why it's important actually to put the, the trauma back in. So this is an mm-hmm. extract from Zeus by Fiona Benson. The day Zeus came to the safe house and shoved a sawed-off shotgun through the letterbox, calling softly like he was calling to the cats, that terrible croon, Hey, honeys, I'm home. Had them kettled for hours. Oh, yes, they were mightily changed, maddened, fuging, dissolved to rivers, shaking like trees in a hurricane, some of them damaged in their entrails, two thrown from high windows, impossible to save. So you see there, you know, Zeus being threatened the light he really should be as a serial mm. rapist, as somebody who uses and abuses women. That again points to one of the things that always, that really struck me when I read Metamorphoses for the first time a couple of years ago, which is it's really hard to tell the difference between the rewards and the punishments. To mm. God, I guess, you know, we all look the same and, you know, how we end, whether it's reward or punishment, doesn't really matter to them very much. You know, it even ties into the film itself. You would think about all the collateral damage that's the result of these two men going after each other. You know, yeah. they're, they're the of their own, uh, their own worlds, for sure. And now our regular feature where we invite poets to talk about their relationship with film and to read a poem. And this week we have Chad Bennett. My name is Chad Bennett. I'm a poet based in Austin, Texas, where I teach poetry and poetics at the University of Texas at Austin. I've written two books, a critical study titled Word of Mouth, Gossip and American Poetry, and a book of poems published in early 2020 by Saraband Books titled Your New Feeling is the Artifact of a Bygone Era. I'm always seduced by, yet skeptical of attempts to imagine poetry metaphorically in terms of film and vice versa. Uh, What do we really mean when we label a film poetic? As I'm tempted to do with, say, a strand of experimental cinema running from somebody like Kenneth Anger through to David Lynch, uh, or when we describe poets or poems as cinematic, which is how I think of a poet like D.A. Powell and his particular montage-esque use of the line and Cezura to construct his poems out of fragments that, that feel like distinct shots. I think poets and sometimes filmmakers have been drawn to a possible correspondence between the two mediums, even as the connection remains, uh, at least for me, a bit fuzzy. Uh, But it's a productive fuzziness, one that's encouraged poets to absorb and contend with cinema in any number of inventive ways. Oscar Wilde wrote, Start with the worship of form, and there's no secret in art that will not be revealed to you. This is a sort of mantra for me, and one aspect of form I found myself worshipping while writing my book of poems was the fade-out both the musical and cinematic versions of it. I'm thinking mostly of narrative film here, Hollywood film, and the continuity system in which the fade out, a transition or a dissolve to black, 
is usually followed by a fade in or else it occurs at the movie's end where it signals closure. It's a simple and common editing transition, but what it implies fascinates me. In the fade out, the film suggests time has passed but doesn't account for that time. We can assume or guess what happens in the gap between the fade out and the fade in or in the ongoing story we're not privy to after the film fades out in conclusion, but that time's unaccounted for in the actual film. We transition into sleep or dream, or a gap occurs that's usually presumed unimportant to the narrative we're watching, although presumably it's important in other ways to the characters who occupy it. Did the character actually fall asleep, space out, go to the bathroom, eat, have sex, run errands? I sometimes wish there were shadow movies for each movie that consist only of the happenings that weren't deemed significant enough to be depicted. I suppose this shadow cinema already exists in Andy Warhol's films like Sleep or Haircut or Empire, or closely related to Warhol in pornography. Sleep, spacing out, sex, the boredom of everyday ritual. These are forms of lost time that film editing usually attempts to elide, but the fade out, it's a little bit showy, points to the presence of this unaccounted for time. This is what interests me about the fade out. What can form designate but not account for? Death, of course, is the ultimate form of unaccounted for time, and none of us know what occurs after that fade out. It might sound preposterous or pretentious, but I think films, the most influential teachers of the 20th century, teach us through all of their little and grand fade-outs a sort of practice for death, asking us at once to avoid thinking too much about, but also to meditate on, unaccounted for time. Where do we go and what do we do when it all fades to black? At any rate, here's a short poem from my book, Your New Feeling is the Artifact of a Bygone Era that attempts its own meditation on and maybe a poetic enactment of the film fade out. I hesitate to say it's really about what I've just been babbling on about, but I suppose it's adjacent to this line of thinking. It's called, your fade out is a tiny philosophy, but no less true for that. Your only teachers are the movies and lovers. And lovers are like movies, only old ones stir desire. That brings us to the end of our discussion of uh, Face Off. Next week, Adam, what do you think we'll do next? I think next we'll uh, we'll, we'll probably delve deeper, I think, into uh, obsession, uh, or the question of obsession, authorship, and cracking codes when we look at David Fincher's 2000 film Zodiac. Oh, you wrote the Justice Department asking to be put in charge of the Zodiac investigation? I merely suggested on our letter that those with intimate knowledge of the case create an information clearinghouse to promote an exchange and free flow of ideas and that you run it but who is better than me the marked man paul if you want to work here i need three things one stop boozing two stop doing whatever else it is you're doing and three cut this nonsense out brilliant i love that film so much yeah it's genius Thank you.